All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you uh, for the truths um, that have come out so clearly this morning so far, that you are the one true God of heaven and earth, that you are the creator of all things, uh, that you are the Lord and saviour of all things. Uh, Lord, we uh, thank you also um, that as the one true God, Lord, you have spoken to us, that we have heard your word that you have called us uh, to be your people. Uh, Lord, I pray, uh, as that song said, that your uh, cry of love would go out. Uh, As I speak this morning, that uh, your people would hear your voice, that they would uh, know uh, your love and your will um, and how to share that love with those around them as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was interested this week, uh, I learned the origin of the term juggernaut. Um, It's one of those random things you learn when you're, uh, I don't know, going down the rabbit holes of the internet, I suppose, but um, uh, you've probably heard the term before, the conjures up this idea of an immense moving object with uh, an unstoppable force. Uh, Maybe you think of a tank or a bulldozer or something that flattens everything in its path. Uh, I found out this week that the term comes from Hindu festivals. Um, The the origin of the term is this great cart uh, bearing an idol with a name that's sort of sounds like juggernaut, which is how the, uh, the English-speaking missionaries um, sort of transliterated it into English. I'm not going to attempt to say the actual name in Hindi, but um, I, uh, I found it kind of a, an interesting story um, from the point of view of a sad irony, I think, in that uh, a few hundred years ago it was... English-speaking missionaries uh, speaking out against these uh, idolatrous parade and festivals. Uh, And now in the West, uh, we have our own idols rolling down streets on trucks. Um, I was uh, reminded last week of the, uh, um, the parade rolling down the streets of Sydney um, in the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras and the, uh, in a lot of ways are like the, uh, the idolatrous festivals uh, of, that the juggernaut derives its name from. But more importantly than these physical juggernauts, if you will, the significance, the problem uh, really is a far more destructive juggernaut, we might say, a cultural juggernaut that has come to dominate the public consciousness in Australia. Our culture has come to idolise sex to promote above all else the sanctity of one's own self-identity, fundamentally to put the self at the centre of all of life. Um, Now, none of this, I'm sure, is new to you. 
um, and nor is the fact that this cultural narrative uh, flies in the face of the biblical gospel. But as we approach uh, the book of Acts once more this morning, uh, we see the gospel go up against the cultural juggernaut of its day. Uh, Paul here, as he approaches Athens, um, is going up against the centre of the cultural, of the dominant cultural juggernaut of the uh, the, the Greek culture um, in his day. Uh, and so, the way that Paul responds in that situation, and the way that the gospel interacts with the Greek cultural juggernaut, will be really instructive for us. Uh, as we face our own culture that is godless and increasingly anti-God today. What happens when the gospel comes face to face with the cultural juggernaut? Uh, Well, we're about to find out. And there's three stages to this story. Uh, Having to do with the gospel's ministry, its message, and then finally its impact. So in verses 16 to 21, we see Paul engaging in the gospel's ordinary ministry. Uh, If you were here last week, you might remember where we left off. Uh, Paul had just arrived in Athens in uh, Acts 17, 15. uh, And here we pick up in verse 16, right uh, right afterwards. Uh, Paul was waiting for them at Athens... Um, and we see what happens there. Uh, you've probably heard of Athens. Uh, it is a, still a city today, of course. Um, it is the, cult, the, the, sorry, the capital city of the modern country of Greece. Um, and in a sense, it was kind of similar in Paul's day. Um, it would be wrong to give the impression that it was the capital of Greece in the sense that Greece wasn't a self-governing nation like it is today. But Athens was the major cultural centre of the Greek world. It was the centre of everything Greek, culture, the arts, the philosophy, the science. Uh, And so it was very culturally impressive, as you might expect. You couldn't go there and not really be wowed by the artistry on display, uh, the beautiful architecture, the cultural displays, the profundity and learnedness of the local leaders but Paul walks into Athens and he sees right through that he sees right through the superficial beauty he sees that the whole culture of Athens isn't beauty for beauty's sake certainly not beauty for the glory of God beauty instead for idolatry's sake and as we see in verse 16 that infuriated Paul His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And that's a good and right response um, to that situation. Uh, The word provoked there is is, uh, picked up uh, from the Old Testament uh, where it describes God's own reaction to idolatry. Um, this week in Bible study, we were talking about the golden, or we, we touched on the golden calf episode, uh, where Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai 
having just heard the commands that we spoke about this morning in the in the catechism, um, that we need to trust and worship God alone and not worship idols. Having just heard those very commands, they turned their backs and made a golden calf as an idol. And the Bible says, using the same word to describe Paul's response here, that it provoked the Lord to anger. Um, So much so that he threatened to destroy the whole nation in that case. Um, And so, again, like I said, Paul's response here is the right response. To see the idolatry of the city of Athens, the way it mocked the true and living God. And the question you might ask then is, what is Paul going to do in response? Well, verse 17 tells us, it says, He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. If you were here last week, you might remember again Steve speaking about Paul's customary way of going about ministry. Uh, in each city he went to, he would, the first thing he would do uh, is go and preach to the Jews in the synagogue, assuming there was one there. He'd find the Jews uh, and try and convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, and then uh, if the Jews believed him, then he would go with them to the Gentiles, or if they didn't believe him, then he would go without them to the Gentiles. But he always went to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And that's what Paul did here in verse 17, which tells us that in response to such a shocking, uh, provoking um, situation of idolatry, Paul just went about his normal gospel ministry. I think this is quite instructive for us. Um, Since we too live in a culture that should provoke our spirits, uh, we too should, uh, like Paul, uh, weep and rage about the the glory of God that has been set aside. Uh, And the way that, and the, the activity that that should provoke us to is ordinary gospel ministry. I, uh, I hear a lot of people sometimes suggesting that the gospel's ordinary ministry doesn't work in a culture like ours. Our culture is too lost. It's, it's too idolatrous. Or at the very least, it's not enough to, to just preach the gospel. Um, perhaps we need to uh, influence society through politics or the media or, um, or education system or whatever we, we try and do. We're trying to uh, our goal shouldn't just be to preach the gospel, but to to try and get Christian values and morals back into society. The simple preaching of the gospel alone won't change our culture. We need to do more. But the Bible shows us that no matter uh, how hard we try and change culture, if we're not doing it through the ordinary ministry of the gospel, we're doomed to failure. And it's not because 
uh, the, the culture is receptive to the gospel or that people are, uh, uh, are impacted or, or are, are going to necessarily listen to the gospel. In fact, it's because our humanity is so corrupt, our culture is, is so far gone, and not just our culture but every culture, that the only way it can be changed is if the hearts of sinners are transformed and saved from sin by the power of the Spirit of God. And the gospel, the good news that Jesus died to save sinners, is the powerful means by which he achieves that. The gospel, the Bible says, is the power of God. Now, the world scoffs at that. What difference can it make to society to tell people about a man who lived 2,000 years ago? Uh, Well, in a moment, we're going to look at the gospel's earth-shattering message and why it makes uh, such a difference. But Paul actually tells us why he puts so much emphasis on the gospel's ordinary ministry. Uh, This is what Paul wrote to the uh, Church of Corinthians. We're going to see next week about Paul's ministry in Corinth. And Corinth was a very similar city to Athens. Uh, And Paul wrote to the Corinthians afterwards, reminding them of what uh, what his ministry was like. He said, Since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, by which he means the ridiculousness of following a crucified Messiah, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God, uh, that is the death of his son and the, the simple ordinary ministry of spreading that message, he says, is stronger than men. And so he goes on, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the mystery of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our cultural impact doesn't come by clever arguments. Our impact doesn't come by high and lofty influence. Our impact doesn't come through uh, the promoting of merely good morals. Our greatest weapon in the sight of God, in his great and powerful and amazing wisdom and grace and power, is the message of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. The ordinary ministry of the word was Paul's primary plan in taking on the profound godlessness of Athens because that's what God has ordained to be the most to be the powerful mean his powerful means of saving sinners. Uh, and likewise in the face of Australia's idolatrous cultural juggernaut we are called to engage in this most powerful and impactful ministry, the ordinary ministry of the gospel.
so Paul preached that message in the synagogues and in the marketplace. Anyone who would listen. Um, and including included in those people who would listen, we see some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, I'm not going to go into who the Epicureans and the Stoics were. You can Google that in your own time if you so desire. But uh, basically, these were the two dominant philosophies, uh, ways of looking at life in the universe in Paul's day. Um, and they clearly don't believe what he's saying. Um, in fact, some of them are just really mocking him. But they found Paul's message interesting and novel enough to invite him to sort of speak with them at their prestigious philosophy forum, the Areopagus. And this is kind of a big deal, I guess. Uh, Paul is, uh, is addressing the, the greatest minds of Greek culture. And, uh, and so we, we ask, what is Paul going to say? What's going to happen uh, when the, the gospel addresses this Greek culture? And how will Paul tackle it? How will Paul bring the message of the true God to the highest philosophical thinkers and idolatrous leaders of the Greek world? Uh, Which leads us to the gospel's earth-shattering message. Uh, Let's work through Paul's sermon and see how he addressed the Greek philosophical culture. Uh, We read in verse 22, Paul said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Just that kind of sounds like a nice thing to say, doesn't it? They're uh, very, very devout in worshipping. We've already seen that. There's lots of idols. Uh, but Paul said there's a profound irony in that. He's, uh, he's kind of taking the mickey out of them a little bit because he says they don't know what they're worshipping. Uh, As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the Unknown God. Uh, Paul is uh, is kind of trying to ri- is, is ribbing his uh, his listeners a bit that should have rankled them a bit. Uh, their whole job as philo- philos- yeah, their whole job as philosophers uh, was figuring out the nature of reality. And God and and uh, Paul says, you still don't actually know what's out there. You, you you're going mm, well. If there's a there's probably an unknown God that we don't know about. And Paul says, your whole job is to know everything. What are you doing? Uh, Paul says, I know this God. I know the God that you're ignorant of. In fact, he is the one true God. He says, the the God made by... Sorry, uh, verse uh, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life, uh, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Uh, Paul is starting here at the very beginning for those who know nothing about God. Now, as an aside, those who know nothing about God is going to be most people in our culture. For those who know nothing about God, this is where we need to start with the truth that God is the one who made earth and everything in it 
He's the one who ordains all that happens on the earth. He has ordained the whole history of mankind, every empire that's risen or fallen, Paul says, every nation that's ever had or moved its borders. God has ordained all of that. Every move of every person, every world power on the face of this earth, we owe it all to him. And so we're called to seek and serve him. In his way, as Paul says, God made every person so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Again, remember, this is, uh, for Paul's listeners, this is the whole life's work to seek God and feel their way towards him and find him. This was their lifelong goal and Paul is kind of pointing the finger and saying, Uh, your entire Greek philosophical system after centuries has failed to find God. The whole, the greatest system that ever was to try and find the nature of reality failed. What does that uh, say about our humanity? Our human inability to seek God and find him on our own. Um, And just to rub in how culpably ignorant we are, Paul adds, he is not far from from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Paul quotes from Greek literature, Uh, Greek proverbial sayings to reiterate that point. It's not as though God is far off. He's not hiding from us. He is our intimate creator and we do not seek him. Our ignorance of him, uh, as evidenced by Paul's uh, pointing to gold and silver and stone idols in verse 29, our ignorance of him really is our fault. And so God will hold us to account for our willful ignorance and our stupid approach to worship. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here, in a nutshell, is the earth-shattering message of the gospel, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is king, Paul says. Jesus is judge. Uh, And what Paul has said applies to every person. Uh, Note how many times Paul says all or every throughout this sermon. God made everything. He made each, sorry, every nation to live on all the face of the earth. Uh, he gives all mankind life and breath and everything. He is not far from each of us. He commands all people everywhere to repent. And of the Lord Jesus, the Lordship of Jesus, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is no escaping the call and the reign of Jesus. There is no escaping the gospel. Your status as an earth-dwelling human being rests on your relationship to Jesus. Either Jesus welcomes you into his kingdom as his subject 
or he holds you to account as his enemy. That is the crucial, earth-shattering message of the gospel. Uh, now, that's not in really the whole message of the gospel. We'll see that people, the best response that people have uh, in verse 32 is to want to hear more. Um, the more that they need to hear, of course, is that the forgiveness is available. The way into the kingdom is through the death of Jesus, the grace of God. Jesus has died to secure forgiveness of our sins. That is the only way that we can enter into his kingdom to enjoy uh, the, the knowledge of God. But the message of the Lordship of Jesus is crucial and earth-shattering for the pagan Greek culture and for our culture too. It's crucial and earth-shattering Because most people in our culture are pretty happy with their life apart from God. In fact, they're firmly convinced that they are better off without him. But Paul's message that he is our creator God, our purpose is to seek him and our king is the risen Lord Jesus, that message flies in the face of our culture's complacency. It clashes with this cultural narrative that we are all there is or that the false gospel, or the false gospel that calls people to find meaning and identity in ourselves. The earth-shattering message of the gospel addresses the cultural juggernaut head-on and right at the heart. As we move into the final verses, we'll see the outcome of all this. They uh, will find out what happens when the proverbial immovable object meets an unstoppable force. One of them is going to be shown to be fake. Which one is going to win out? Uh, Let's read the final verses and see. Verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear more. We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Uh, I don't know about you, but I find these verses a little bit anticlimactic, a bit underwhelming, maybe even a little bit disappointing. I mean, this is the biggest preaching opportunity, at least the most high-profile one, the Gospel has to date. And, uh, And the outcome is that most people mock and a handful want to hear more. The impact of Paul's ministry in Athens in the end was just a small group of Christians. The the church in Athens isn't even mentioned in the rest of the New Testament. We uh, might sense that these verses uh, tell us about the gospel's underwhelming impact. That's kind of a bummer, isn't it? And it's not certainly not in keeping with the message of the book of Acts. Or even with the message that Paul's just preached, for that matter. Which should make us go back and think about what's actually going on here. Has this cultural juggernaut, this Greek culture, really stopped the gospel in its tracks? Well, no. We've established that the truth of the gospel, the, the victory of Jesus is true. 
It rests on the historicity of the resurrection. Paul tells us that in verse 31. And the fact that the Greeks mocked about the resurrection doesn't actually mean it's not true. It doesn't disprove it or undermine it. Who cares if the Athenians don't believe in the resurrection? It's still true. It's still a historical fact. The only way to disprove the gospel is to... Uh, sorry, to destroy the gospel is to disprove the resurrection. Mock it all you like, but it remains fact. It's clear from history that Jesus died and was buried, uh, and three days later people found the tomb that he was buried in empty. And then over the next 40 days, hundreds of people saw him alive. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is undeniable historical fact which means Jesus is Lord of all. That is to say, regardless of the visible impact of the gospel, or the number of converts, or the social power of the church, or the, the change of the culture, or the, what the dominant narrative would have you believe, regardless of what it looks like, The gospel is fundamentally, ultimately, eternally, unbreakably victorious. Um, And so in your bulletins, uh, I've got the the underwhelming crossed out. What we see here is the gospel's victorious impact. Uh, The gospel message stands and Jesus reigns eternal. As Peter writes, All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached. Um, Now we see that even in the verses. uh, There is, the gospel hasn't been stopped People believe. The salvation of sinners is no small thing. We, we have this tendency to judge the success of the gospel by how many people are converted, by a, a number. But remember how Jesus described the great joy in heaven over thousands of sinners who repent. No, hang on, that's not quite right. Over one sinner who repents. Jesus says, what a wonderful joy that is when one sinner repents. And here we have two named plus more. What a joyous thing. What a wonderful victory of Jesus. This passage shows us that the gospel stands victorious over over the crushed remains of the cultural juggernaut for those who have faith to see it. And the same is true today, regardless of how big or small our church or the church in Australia is, regardless of how little or much influence Christians have, regardless of how dominant the cultural narrative is, the message of the gospel will stand victorious for all eternity. Now, wrapping up, like Paul, we're, uh, we're also in a great clash between to, between the gospel and the dominant cultural nat- juggernaut. Now, sure, Mafra isn't ever really going to be the epicenter of a clash of cultures, not like Athens was, the, uh, the centre of Greek culture. 
But Paul's, this account of Paul's ministry confronting the Greek culture in, in Athens gives us some pointers for our own ministry confronting postmodern Australian culture in the city, in the town of Mafra. Um, and so we should check ourselves and learn from Paul's ministry approach. Uh, let me ask a few questions as you uh, think about your approach to spreading the gospel in light of Paul's ministry. Firstly, are you committed to the ordinary ministry of the gospel? That is, are you convinced that the best way to reach this world for God is to preach the message of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus? Are you convinced that the best way to reach individuals around you is to converse with them simply about the gospel? In your desire to see our town and nation transformed, do you trust in the power of the word of God, the gospel bearing fruit in the power of the Holy Spirit? I hope that's your primary, your default way of of, uh, seeking to reach and change the world because the preaching of the gospel is God's wisely chosen, powerfully effective, stated means of addressing the cultural juggernaut. Uh, Secondly, do you shape your your preaching of the gospel, your, your sharing of it with those around you in such a way that will address the Uh, the culture in which we live and especially the particular people that you're speaking to? Do you understand the culture that we're living in today? Do you know what are the idols that our culture seeks above all else? Do you know what's the message of our culture and how that message promotes a false gospel? Do you know and are able to affirm what the culture believes that is true? And can you show how the gospel completes and satisfies the desires, the right desires that people have in our culture? Uh, What we see in this chapter is Paul did understand those things in, in terms of the Greek culture. He understood them at a very deep level so that he could apply the gospel to them. He exploited uh, his knowledge of the culture around him to present the gospel in a way that applied deeply to it. Um, If you're wanting to know more about this, there are some great books around. Um, Carl Truman's got a couple of books, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self uh, and Strange New World is kind of a shortened version. Um, Stephen McAlpine uh, is an Australian. He has a book called Being the Bad Guys. Uh, how to live for Jesus in a world that says you shouldn't. Um, and there's a new book by Christopher Watkin called Biblical Critical Theory um, that addresses these sorts of themes as well. Um, or check out the Gospel Coalition's new online space, uh, the Keller Centre for Cultural Apologetics, they call it, um, which is a uh, place that is all about uh, addressing how we can address as Christians the culture in which we live. Because it is as we address the culture with simple, with the simple earth-shattering news of Jesus Christ that the gospel uh, takes root in people's hearts. But finally, and most importantly, do you see and rejoice and hope for the victory of the gospel? 
Do you have the eyes of faith to see the eternality of the word of God, the victory of the risen Lord Jesus? As I said before, it takes faith uh, and hope in the, it takes faith to see and hope in the victory of the gospel, especially if there's a godless cultural juggernaut having its destructive way. It's hard to rejoice at the impact of the gospel when very few people are converted, especially when people mock the gospel or worse. So are you encouraged and hopeful come what may on account of the eternal reign and the provable historicity of the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Do you pray that the kingdom of Jesus would transform and redeem our culture by the power of the preached and spirit-empowered message of the gospel? Do you believe that the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus is the eternal rock under which all kingdoms and cultural juggernauts of history will be crushed? May the eternal victory of our risen King always be our steadfast hope and joy as we seek the salvation and transformation of the world around us. Let's pray. Lord God, we uh, thank you so much uh, once again that you are the eternal King. Uh, Lord, we um, acknowledge that you have put us in a in a situation into a culture. Uh, where there is um, very little acknowledgement of you. Uh, And Lord, perhaps that is is, uh, frightening. Uh, Perhaps that is troubling. Um, But Lord, we pray that it would also be a hopeful um, and uh, a, a a situation where we might see the opportunity for the gospel fruit. Uh, Lord, we thank you that your gospel is true, that your gospel is simple, and that your gospel ultimately attacks the, uh, the, the message of the world around us head on in a way that brings hope and life and freedom for all. Uh, and so, Lord, we pray that as we go, you would help us to speak that gospel into the lives of those around us in a way that's engaging and deeply applied. And we pray that you would give fruit to that preaching by the the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.